It was the late 1970s, and our nation's economy wasn't doing as well as most people would have liked, and it was affecting a lot of businesses. One of those businesses it was affecting was Mattel Toy Company. And uh, I saw, I was reading this, they were mentioned in, in an article that I was reading a few weeks ago, and it led me to do this really deep dive on Barbie dolls, and I never thought I would spend so much time reading about this, but um, Barbie was their biggest kind of their biggest toy that they were selling, and that was their biggest money maker. And so they weren't selling it the way they wanted to. And so they did what a lot of big businesses did, especially back then. <laughs> they lied about it. Um, they falsified a bunch of records and put them uh, forward, got a lot of people in some hot water, uh, got themselves in hot water. There's about four or five different lawsuits that were coming against Mattel Toy Company. And so they decided we got to do, uh, we got to try something a little bit different here. And so they went back to the drawing board, they took the Barbie doll, and they started uh, kind of making some adjustments with her. Um, they, they changed some of the sizes for her so that if you wanted to buy the new uh, accessories to, the, to go with her, you'd have to get the new doll. Um, they put, they uh, put like hinges on different joints now so that she was a little bit more movable, things like this, trying to make her uh, into a, kind of a newer version of the toy so that people would go and buy this doll. Um, they're also discovering that uh, part of their lack of being able to sell this doll is because the previous generation that bought the first doll grew up, and instead of buying a new one, they just passed on the one that they had, uh, kind of like a legacy type thing. And so that's what was going on for them. It wasn't working. So they came up with another plan. They said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Anybody who has an older version of the doll, they can come, bring it in, trade it in for an allowance to purchase this new doll. This campaign worked. As of 1996, or a report in 1996 showed that 99% of all girls between the ages of 3 and 10 owned a Barbie doll, and the average girl owned eight of them. And it worked for them. What Mattel didn't tell people is that they were feeding into a culture that, learned, that, 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 that taught us and, and we learned behaviors to where when you're tired of something old, you can just trade it in for something new. Now, I'm not mad at Mattel. They're just trying to do their business. That, that, that's fine. But since then, for 40 plus years now, we have been breathing in this culture that when this isn't good enough or if you're tired of this or if you see someone who has something that's a little bit better, the, the way that we would go about doing this is that we would dispose of the old and would go and try to uh, find the new because, because it's new, it's better, or it's more, or it's just greater, and it's more important for us to have that. See, this behavior of the disposal, we've taken this and we've applied it not just to the things that we've purchased, but we've also started applying it to the people that are in our lives. That, man, when I'm tired of this person here or when I'm tired of this job here or when I'm tired of this circumstance here, then I just need to look for greener pastures somewhere else. And it has absolutely impacted our relationships. It's impacted the way we even do church. And it's impacted just every kind of square in our life. There's another word that we can use for this, and we can use the word distortion. Because our desires get inflamed when we start twisting the way that we think, and so we distort what's actually the reality in front of us. We pervert or twist something from its original state. All of a sudden, it's just not good enough. What has worked and worked and worked enough. There we go. Um, what I said there was really important. I'm sorry you missed out. 
Um, but that's kind of the backdrop, too. That's kind of uh, what we see in this chapter of the story. If, if you've been with us for the last nine weeks, um, we have uh, been in this series called The Story, and we keep learning about these patterns that the people of God get into, and then we learn about this pattern of redemption that God brings with them because of this. So the people of God find themselves in trouble. Most of the time it's because of really bad decisions that they make, and then God comes in and says, okay, this is how it's going to happen, and they beg for God to forgive them. God, we need your mercy. God, we need you to set us straight, and he does. Now we are in chapter 10 of the story. It's going to be in the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along there. But God's going to do something a little bit different now. Because the people of God have now distorted his reality for them. He's just going to let them sit and wallow in it. And we're going to see exactly what happens throughout all this. Now, like I said, the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel, we're not going to read every single word of it. Um, but I want to give you a background uh, just so that we can kind of understand how Israel gets to a place that they distort the will of God, the purpose of God. At the beginning of this book, there's a man named Elkanah. He's from a town called Ephraim. Now, Elkanah has two wives, and if you've read this before, you're familiar with his wives. The first wife is Hannah. Hannah is the one that he loves the most, but she is also the one that cannot have kids. Uh, we're told in the scripture that she is barren and that she's incredibly heartbroken over this. Well, Elkanah has a second wife, Peninnah. Peninnah does have kids, and more than that, we're told that Peninnah provokes Hannah in this kind of element of having kids. Now, we're not told exactly how she does that, but we can imagine how she does that, right? Oh, Hannah, you have no idea how hard it was. I got to keep getting up in the middle of the night to feed my kids. Man, parenthood is such a thing. You're lucky you don't have to do this. Oh, uh, Hannah, we've had some issues at school. Being a parent is really, really hard. You're so blessed that you don't have to worry about this and you don't have to run into this. However it played out, Peninnah was provoking Hannah to a point that when they would make their yearly trek to the tabernacle, to the place of worship, Hannah would weep bitterly every single year. And as the years went on, she would get even more and more heartbroken, and we're told that she starts uh, weeping and praying a prayer of desperation, that her lips are moving, but there's no sound coming out. Have you ever been in that position where you are praying a prayer of desperation? And I'm not talking about like just normal prayer. I'm talking about God, I have nowhere else to go. Maybe even in your desperation, you're going, I don't even know if you're real, but there's nothing else for me to do. I'm coming to you. And that you feel like your lips can move, but there's no words that can come out. I remember the first time I ever prayed on my own. I'd been around like dinner tables and stuff before where people have prayed. Um, but the first time I ever prayed on my own, now this is going to sound a little silly, but at the time, it was a big deal for me, okay? I was around 12 or 13 years old. It was a summer, and my baseball team was in the middle of a big kind of a run in, in our league, all right? I had gone up to bat about four or five times in a row, and four or five times in a row, I had been drilled in my ribs to a point where I did not enjoy batting in baseball anymore. 
And so after that, about four, five, six, seven, eight-ish, nine times in a row, I struck out because you really can't hit anything when your eyes are closed and you're jumping out of the batter's box. And so we were about ready to play a very important game against the police athletic bears. That's how you know how important this is, okay? We were fighting for position in our league in the end of the season tournament, and before the game started, I prayed my prayer of desperation. God, if you will let me get a base hit, I promise I will start going to church every single Sunday. All right, that was my prayer. All right, again, silly now, then a big deal, okay? Um, I didn't have a car, didn't really have a way to get there, but I was going to figure out a way to work this out. Well, I didn't get, a, didn't get that base hit until the very last at bat, and I actually knocked in the game-winning hit and got injured more when my team piled up on me than I would have if anybody drilled me with the ball. Um, I did not go to church the following Sunday, okay? But I thought about that for a long time. When I was introduced to Jesus a little bit later, um, started walking with him, I think... Uh, at least this is how my brain works. God laughs and says, I'm going to put you in ministry so that you need to be at church every single week. And remember that time you got a base hit? Yeah, here you go. Now you got to do this, okay? But that was my first time being in a desperate place where I thought, I don't have anywhere else to go except for God. And that's where Hannah was. And God hears Hannah's prayer. And a son is born. His name is Samuel. Um, it, his name means God has heard. And because of this, this prayer of desperation that Hannah has, she dedicates him to the Lord. And for her, that means she's going to turn him over to the priest. His name is Eli. And he's going to raise him to be a priest and be the one who serves God in the tabernacle. We're told of Samuel in 1 Samuel 2.26. And the boy continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. The problem is the same could not be said for the rest of the people that are involved in this part of the story. This part of the story picks up, picks up where Judges le leaves off. At the end of the book of Judges, we're told this of the people of Israel, that in Judges 21-25, that in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And this is what seems to be the pattern of the people of God, that the people of God continue to do what they see fit or what they think is what, uh, right in their own eyes. Well, the people of God have distorted God's will as we continue through this story. And there's a number of ways against this backdrop that Israel has distorts God's will. Uh, one of the ways is kind of a distortion of pretension. Another word we might use for this is phoniness, that they appear to be one thing, but in reality, they're living out something else. I told you about the priest. His name is Eli. Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and these guys, um, and they're characters. They are also being raised in the tabernacle by Eli, and they're being raised to be priests as well. They're training to be these priests. But we also read about them abusing the sacrificial system. So people would come in, bring in their burnt offerings, and they would take the best of the meat and keep it for themselves and dine on that. And then the leftovers, they would have the people go and bring that to God. The equivalent for us today would be if one of us were standing next to the buckets when you were dropping in your offering, we say, hey, just give the lion's share. I've got a better bucket right here. Just, just tuck it away right there. And then we would keep for ourselves the majority or the better part of your offering. This is what they were doing. We also read as they go on that uh, they could have married and had their own families and raised them in a way in which God would have been pleased. But instead, they came to the temple, to the tabernacle, 
and they seduced the ladies that were there and had these sinful relationships with them. And this infuriated God. It infuriated him too because Eli refused to reprimand them in a way that would correct their behavior. And because of that, we read about God's judgment coming onto them to the point where they, are, where they die. Also, because Israel didn't speak up in those moments as well, the Ark of the Covenant gets taken and stolen by another nation around them. And now Israel is just left kind of wandering by themselves. You see, the outward appearance of religious lives has never been the will of God. The number of sinful acts being done in the name of the Lord is quite baffling. And then we get frustrated when the world looks at us and they don't understand the love of God when the very people who have received it and who have claimed it are also still leading greedy and broken lives. So the question is, are you the same person on the inside as you portray on the out? You sing praise on Sunday, but do you bring curse on Monday? Does your life look the same tomorrow as it does right now? And if the answer is no, then you ought to know that here in a few minutes, we're going to have an invitation time, and there's going to be some people at these doors over here who want to pray with you through that and start connecting some dots with that. Well, they distort God's will in other ways. Uh, another way they distort God's will is through uh, uh, what we call conformity. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, we read this. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. They looked around them and they were saying, man, it, this isn't working well. Samuel, appoint a king. We want to be like the other nations around us. We want to be like them. It seems to be working out for them. And if you can picture this in your mind, these protesters come to Samuel's place and say, we want a king. We want a king. We know you're a representative of God. We want a king. The hope that they have in God has now been moved to a hope in man. And the preference for them is now for a political leader rather than for spiritual direction. See, conformity for Israel, for them, it looked like other nations. Conformity for us looks like a lot of things, but I think it looks an awful lot like consumerism. If we can have all the right things, then we will be blessed. If we can have the right programs or the right churches or the right schools, well, then God will be blessing us. If we can have the right governments, the right friends, the right homes, the right toys, the right experiences, that's what we equate to blessing far too often. More, 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 better, better, better. I want what they have. I want what they have. And if that's our case, I think that's become our king. I think that's what we serve. But the truth is, you cannot influence the world by becoming like it. The world will not be influenced by those that become like it. So Samuel gets frustrated. And he continues on in Samuel chapter 8, uh, 6 through 9 says this. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, 
And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And that's exactly what Samuel does. He warns them um, that if you have an earthly king, this is what's going to happen, a bunch of fallout. But in this, God permits them to have what they want. He lets them dwell in what they desire despite the warning from Samuel. And we continue reading a little bit further on in verse 19 and 20. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. See, up to this point, it would be the Lord who would go out before them and fight their battles. And they choose an earthly king. They want a different king. And so our question here is, does your life look more like these people or does it look more like Samuel? Does your life look more like these people or does it look like Samuel? Does your desire to fit in override your desire to be holy? And if the answer to that is yes, know that here in just a few minutes, we're going to have some people lined up that want to pray with you about that. But you need to be honest with yourself. Does my desire to fit in override my desire to be holy? Well, one other way that they distort the will of God is through this kind of idea of importance, or maybe we would say pride. Because God told Samuel, yes, go ahead and give them what they want. In 1 Samuel uh, chapters 9 through 13, Samuel goes and seeks out one to be king, and he finds a guy named Saul. Uh, Saul is brought in as king, and his qualifications to be king is that he walked in and he was a head taller than everybody else. Now, I've heard of worse ways to pick out your leaders, but this is what their kind of way that they decided is going to happen. Saul was taller than everybody else, so that guy needs to be our king, and their response to that was, long live the king. And so Saul takes the kingdom, takes the throne, and his first order of business is to go wage war. And the reason for that is because that's what earthly kings do. Earthly kings wage war. Earthly kings wage war. Mankind is prone to work against peace. You see, when God was their king, I mean, when God is our king, we are told that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but that it is a spiritual battle, that it's spiritual by nature. But nonetheless, God permits Saul to go wage this war, and he's victorious with this, and he brings back the Ark of the Covenant. He's successful in this war because he listened to instruction given to him by the Lord. Lord said, if we're going to have an earthly king, this is how it's going to play out. Well, a little bit later on, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul goes and wages another war. And this time, the Lord tells Saul, I'm sending you out to the Amalekites. You are going to wage war against them because they hate me. But know that you're going to be an instrument used by me to bring that retribution. And so the working orders of the Lord to Saul as he wages this war is to completely destroy Amalek. Leave nothing alive. There is no prisoners that you are going to take. And Saul follows these orders mostly. Mostly. He is mostly obedient to this. 
However, he leaves the king of Amalek alive, and there is also, there's also some other spoils that are spared in this. Why did Saul not follow these orders all the way through? I don't really know. I can just guess. Maybe, maybe he saw the king of Melek, and there's some kind of kinship that he has with another king. And he, maybe he's thinking, okay, if I was captured, I wouldn't want to be killed, so I'm, I'm going to spare him as well. I'm not sure. Maybe it's that he fought this war, and he just said, you know what? That's enough for right now. We're, we're done right now. I, I, we're, we're just going to call it right here. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he just wanted to keep some things for himself. After all, he's the king, right? That this is what the kings do. They take the spoils. In any case, Saul thought that he had a better plan than God does. Saul thought that he had a better plan than God does. Saul's distorted view here is that God is the one that works for him. God's the one that represents him. God's the one that represents this army right here. When in reality, it was God who told him, no, it's the other way around. I'm sending you out on behalf of me. God's under the impression that he's God and Saul's not. That's the plan that God put forward with him. Too often, our disobedience misrepresents God to the world. And too often, we keep our options rather than pursue obedience. Boy, when Samuel finds this out, he goes and confronts Saul. And this is what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For the rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. What's he saying here? He's saying your heart of obedience is better than your token of offering. Your heart of obedience is better than what you burn on the altar or what you throw in the offering plate. How many times have we tried to outthink God? How many times have we tried to outstrategize him? How many times have we tried to outplan him? Almost obedience is distortion of the will of God. And it is saying, God, you know what? You got me this far, but I've got it from here. Are you tired of taking the reins and doing life your own way? Are you tired of just trying to live the way that mankind has designed or tries to design for us to live? And if the answer to that is yes, know that here in just a minute, we're going to have some people at the invitation, uh, at these decision points that want to pray with you about that. That, God, I'm tired of distorting your will. It is time for me to let go of me. When we distort God's plan, I think God must be thinking something like this. They must not really want me as their king. They must want something else. They must want someone else. They want their options and not obedience to me. You see, Saul couldn't see the big picture. In James, we read that we are to humble ourselves before the Lord, and he'll be the one that lifts us up. And Israel's cry for a new king was marked by a series of nearsighted mistakes and choices. They couldn't see that by choosing a human king, they were choosing against God. They couldn't see that their lust for power derailed God's purpose for them as a nation. They couldn't see God's salvation in the midst of their circumstances. Saul wanted to create his own options rather than obeying God's word. He was too nearsighted to see God's work and God's big picture plan. And I guess we're probably faced with the same question today. Do you want God to be your king? 
Or do you want someone else or something else to sit on that throne? Will you obey or will you rationalize? I'll tell you something today. God wants to be the king of our life. And he wants to be king so badly that he left heaven and came to earth to prove it. And when Jesus, God in the flesh, was beaten by Roman guards, he stood silent and endured it. He chose purpose over power. And when he was mocked while hanging on a cross and suffocating to death, he chose salvation over circumstances. And when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, he chose obedience over those options. And when he walked out of the grave just three days later, he proclaimed forever, I am the only king that you will ever need. You know, it's possible you might need to make a decision today. And maybe you've been coming here for some time and you're growing in your walk with Christ, but, but you answered on the wrong side of some of those questions and it's time to meet with those people and pray about that. But there are other of us here that, uh, who have uh, never accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And when we say Lord, we mean he is the king of our lives. And you need to confess that you're not perfect and that there is one who is. And then now is the time for the repentance of our sin. And it's time for us to believe that Jesus is God's son and that he gets to reign in our lives. Those are decisions that you need to make today. When we sing this song, why don't you stand up and just make your way to those rooms. And we got some folks who want to pray with you about that. Will you stand as we sing? And if you need to make a decision, go ahead and do that.